Hello and welcome to the Doc Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mike DeLuke, and it's my mission to help you lead a happier, healthier, and more prosperous life, both personally and professionally. Hey, everybody, it's Dr. Mike. I had such a great talk with John Vento about tax strategies and tax planning and tax circumstances surrounding practice ownership that I'm deciding to break it up into two separate episodes. So it's still going to be part two of our three-part series, but there's going to be part 2A and part 2B. In part 2A, we're going to focus more on whether you're an employee, independent contractor, practice owner, and the tax ramifications therein as well as talking about uh, the wealth creation ability of each of those particular options. We'll talk about different entity selection for uh, practice owners uh, and independent contractors. And then we'll also touch on the pros and cons of DSOs. In part B, we'll focus more on the practice ownership side of things, getting into whether or not you have certain tax advantages or disadvantages as an owner, how to handle those different circumstances. Uh, and we'll talk in more, much more detail about the ownership of real estate uh, and some things that can be done, including 1031 exchanges and Delaware statutory trusts. So with that, let's begin part 2A of this three-part series with Mr. John Vento. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Doc Podcast. I'm happy to have Mr. John Vento back for part two of our three-part series on tax information for dentists. John is the president and CEO of Vento Tax and Wealth Management Group, and he's a nationally renowned keynote speaker, professor, and financial service industry thought leader. I went into detail regarding all of John's professional accomplishments and affiliations at the start of part one of this series, which was released on September 8th, 2023. So be sure to check that out to learn more about John and his extensive background as both a CPA and certified financial planner. We had a really great response to part one of this series where the focus of our discussion was on tax credits, deductions, and audits for the dental practitioner. I highly recommend if you haven't seen that episode that you check it out. There's a ton of great information in there. I also put a link to it in the show notes along with a link to John's book, which I highly recommend you getting called Getting 2.X. Uh, and as I said, I'll, I'll put a link to the book in as well as uh, John has some great tax calculators on his website that we discussed in part one and some other great information on his site. So I'll, I'll direct you to that in the show notes. Today in part two, we're going to be talking about taxes and practice ownership. So this is going to be a great discussion, uh, both for those who are considering starting, uh, buying or selling uh, a practice, or those who are already in an ownership position in a practice. We're going to really tailor the content to be able to give a lot of information to both sides. We're going to discuss such things as taxation between employees, differences between employees, independent contractors, and practice owners, the different uh, entities that are available for practice owners to select, the pros and cons of DSOs, uh, whether or not owning the building in which you practice is a wise decision. And we'll get into some tax smart options for selling your commercial real estate in the event that you do own it when you would eventually sell it and much, much more. Before we begin, I do want to let it be known that the content of this episode is for general information purposes only. It's not intended to be specific financial, accounting, or legal advice, nor is it directed towards any one individual or any group of individuals. Please consult your own accountant, CPA, and or financial advisor for information regarding your specific situation. 
So without further ado, and with that, I would like to welcome John back to the podcast. Thank you very much for, for joining me again on part two of our three-part series uh, to really help the dental practitioner in as many ways as possible regarding taxation and taxes. So thanks so much for get, coming back on, John. Thanks for having me back, Mike. Appreciate it. Uh, so before we get started, just take a little bit of a moment. I had some questions from people about uh, the exact services your firm offers clients. So if you could just take a moment before we dive into the content to just go into a little bit more about that, if you would. Sure. Well, we're a uh, CPA firm as well as a certified financial planning firm, and we specialize in working with dental practices throughout the country. We also work with individuals that are dentists, but not in practice as well. So what makes us unique is we're a dental CPA firm uh, because we specialize in that area and we provide the, the basic accounting and tax services you would get from a lot of firms uh, like ours, but we gear it toward dental practices, even the way we set up our chart of accounts so that we can monitor dental industry standards. It's very tailored towards the dentist. The biggest thing we do is what's called tax planning. I refer to it as tax March strategies. That's where I take a situation that I may be in and save, save them tens of thousands of dollars, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars through tax smart strategies. We also, on the CPA firm side, provide financial dental practice advice. Uh, most tax preparation firms or CPA firms don't go to that extent, but we do. And then eventually, if you decide to buy into a practice, sell a practice, we're actively involved with tax smart strategies on the transition planning as to whether you're going to be buying or selling. Uh, we'd help you out on both ends of that. The other side of the practice uh, is the wealth management services that we provide. So we are truly a comprehensive wealth management firm. Uh, so coincidence, you know, the title of my book talks about comprehensive wealth management. Uh, so we zero in on every aspect of your personal financial life on the CFP side of the business. Uh, we also do things such as investment advisory services. So we'll create models, help you buy and sell the right stocks, create an investment portfolio. And then also we have a specialty in the real estate area as well, where if you're looking to buy a dental practice, sell a dental practice, common question is, what about the real estate that the property is in? We have a lot of very great strategies that we help clients implement. And at the end of the day, what does all this equate to? The dentist will end up keeping a lot more money in their pocket rather than giving it up in unnecessary tax dollars to the government. Awesome. Thank you for laying that out. And I think that's um, really clear why you and your firm are such such experts on these topics and why you're such a great person to have on the podcast to discuss these things because you understand it from a multifaceted approach, not just a sort of myopic, narrow-minded view of, say, just looking at the X's and O's of taxes, but you're also looking at the overall wealth management picture, which I think offers a nice, unique side to the client who would be uh, who would be using you guys for their tax and or wealth management needs. So I appreciate you explaining that more. Yeah. Uh, just, so, just to, just, sorry, Mike, just to elaborate yeah, no, on that one point, because you yeah, sure. think of stuff. So what, again, makes us so unique is that we're not only providing the advice, on the CPA firm side, mm -hmm. but the wealth management side puts us in a position where we can actually implement the advice for the clients as well. So yeah. sometimes it's a lot lost in the translation between here's what you should do, and then you go to someone else to help you implement it, and they, they could be clueless, and yep. that's where you end up falling into a lot of problems. So 
So it truly provides a comprehensive wealth management approach to your finances. Awesome. Great. Thank you. And that's uh, that's unique. I, I, I'm sure you're in pretty pretty rarefied air when it comes to that offering all those services for uh, for what for professionals like Dennis under under one roof. So um, that's that's great. So with that knowledge, we're going to dive into some really cool stuff today. I'm excited to talk about this because I think it applies to uh, taxes apply to all of us. And as you said, in, in part one, I mean, the single biggest expense you'll ever have in your life is taxes. It's the single biggest overhead expense in your practice. So it's so important that we're aware of that because this adds up to and equates to real dollars. And I think what happens is we don't really get, and as Dennis, I can say, uh, we don't get a financial education. Uh, I've taught residents for the past almost going on 20 years. Um, and it seems to be, I end up offering a lot of guidance just on understanding money and cash flow and the basics of it, but I'm certainly not a, an accountant and or financial planner. I can't give them that next level of advice. And in our educational process, I've been surprised. I know when I was educated, you know, in the nineties into the early two thousands, we didn't have a lot of that financial education. Surprisingly, it hasn't changed. <laughs> and the newer docs coming out, you would think that they would have implemented this, but there's so much content to review in those four years of, of professional school, of, of dental school in this case, uh, and then your residency, your two or three years for those out there who are specialists or surgery, you know, five or six years, there's just not a lot of time for it. So it kind of becomes the, the easiest thing to cut out or the hardest thing to implement. And it really leaves a lot of dentists getting out there, really not understanding even the basics of, of taxation, of practice ownership, of being an employee. I mean, a lot of us have maybe got a W-2 in your residency, but a lot of us have just been in school for all these years. So I, I kind of call it, in, we're institutionalized when I teach the residents. I say, I'm like, you know, you come out, you, you've been in school for 11 plus years after high school for general dentists, eight to nine, a lot of them. Um, it, it's, it can kind of brainwash you on one mindset in the sciences as we need to learn all of that content, but it does leave you with a big deficiency and big void in, in the finance arena. So with that, let's kind of start with the basics, knowing that our audience has a mix of everybody from residents to senior docs who just sold their practices. Liz, can you just give a little bit of a of a background on the difference between being an employee dentist who just gets W-2 wages, an independent contractor, which we'll dive more into that in detail in a few moments, uh, who's going to be paid on 1099 income, and then a practice owner dentist who's most likely going to be receiving some combination of W-2 wages and, say, distributions. Absolutely. So W-2 employee uh, just means you're an employee for a practice. Uh, with every paycheck that you get paid, the taxes come directly out of your paycheck. So it's a pretty simple process. The big problem with being a W-2 employee is that the deductions and credits available to you are diminished. And in many cases, just wiped out altogether. So you don't have the same ability to come up with tax-saving strategies when you're a W-2 employee. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the advantages of being a W-2 employee is that the employer does pay half of the social security tax and Medicare tax, mm. so that's a break. And also, most often, employers have to provide you with some sort of tax benefits, tax-free benefits for being an employee. So in a nutshell, that's really what an employee is all about. Mm. Uh, when we're talking about an independent contractor that receives a 1099, every payment that's made to that dentist for the services rendered, no tax is withheld at the source, so you get the full amount of your paycheck up front, but this also opens up the door to extensive tax deductions and credits that may be available to you. Mm. Whether you're an independent contractor or if you're a dental practice owner, 
all the deductions and credits we talk about throughout these three podcasts mm-hmm. are really going to be the same. Uh, but the big difference, again, is as an independent contractor, you generally don't have your own brick and mortar location. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're basically going out to various dental offices, freelancing, maybe servicing their clients as opposed to your own. Now, in terms of taxes as an independent contractor, you're going to be required to pay quarterly estimated taxes. So maybe they might not be taking the taxes out of your paycheck, but you're still responsible to make the tax payments for that work on a quarterly basis. And now you're paying the Social Security and Medicare tax, both the employer's portion and the employee's portion. The other thing is, as an independent contractor, you generally are not going to get employee benefits that you may get if you work as a W-2 employee. So clearly there's pros and cons to both, but most dentists, when they understand the difference between one and another, they're going to try to become independent contractors because that just opens up a whole world of tax deductions and credits to you. Uh, unfortunately, it's not that simple. The decisions that up to you know you and the other dentists. Uh, we'll go through some of those uh, criteria a little later in this podcast. If but I could, the, for one second, just ask a question, follow sure. question on that. I th- I think it's quite misunderstood. Uh, be on the side of whether it's the W-2 wage employee or the independent contractor, that 15.3% that's coming out that, correct me if I'm wrong, an independent contractor would not only need to be paying that co- their, their, their income tax quarterly, but also their self-employment tax, if you want to call it that, but the Medicare and Social Security portion of that is that would they be, they'd have to pay both of those quarterly, right? Exactly. It's, it's all the tax, both income tax, Social Security, Medicare tax. That's all paid quarterly through quarterly estimated tax payments, correct? And as you pointed out, as an independent contractor, you're paying not just uh, your share, which is 7.65%, but you're paying another 765 mm-hmm. which is the employer's portion, up to a certain level of your, of your overall income. Mm-hmm. So that, again, is a negative to being an independent contractor, but again, having the flexibility and freedom of being an independent contractor and opening up a, a world of tax deductible items to you, uh, in most cases more than offset the other. Got it. So if you, as long as they know that, because I don't, I think most employees, if you asked whether it's a dental profession or not, do they know that they're paying 7.65% of every dollar. And then the employer is matching that. Most employers would probably have no idea that that's actually happening, that when you own the business. But like you said, while it might seem like at first a deterrent to be an independent contractor, again, we're going to go over the rules of when or that can or can't apply. But just looking at it uh, from sort of an objective stance to say, okay, I, I could be an independent contractor, but I really don't want to be one because I don't want to pay that extra 7.65%. What you're saying is the tax deductions that it opens up and the freedoms that it allows you to deduct certain, to be better off from a taxation standpoint, can significantly outweigh that extra 7.65%. And that amount only applies up to, correct me if I'm wrong, it's like $160,000 in 2023. So beyond that, that number is going to drop down anyway, right? That's correct. And the other thing, and I'm glad you brought this up, if you're negotiating for a position and the position may be as an employee, mm-hmm. you know, throwing a number out there, you, you may be agreeable to pay, let's say, get paid $50 an hour. We should throw that out there as a number. If you're an independent contractor, 
and the employer is offering that same $50 an hour, you're not getting a good deal there at all because like you said, certain mm -hmm. benefits you're losing. So the give and take there is if you're going in as an independent contractor and you meet the requirements, you're not looking for $50 an hour, you should be looking for at least $55 an hour. Mm -hmm. So okay. independent contractors should demand more money uh, as an independent contractor uh, versus an employee. And that'll help offset the cost of social security, Medicare, tax, other benefits that you would otherwise get that you may not be getting. And if you're able to do that and also get all the tax benefits as an independent contractor, you're in a much better situation. Right. Because if you don't, essentially the employer is getting to not pay there that second half, paying you the same hourly and then saving on that their portion of the Social Security Medicare tax. The employer is basically getting away with paying about 10% less to you mm -hmm. from the salary and or benefits. And again, I'm not even counting health insurance, but just basic things like food attacks, food attacks, unemployment insurance, there's all these other things an employer has to provide. As a rule of thumb, I always say you should ask for at least 10% more versus being an employee for the reason I just mentioned. That's, that's a great tip. Awesome. Thank you. Sorry. So if you can go ahead and grip to um, the practice ownership side. Right. So when you're in practice for yourself, and now we're talking about you have your own physical location, you have employees, you have a staff, you have the whole brick and mortar dental practice. You really get the best of both worlds, especially if you're set up as an S corporation. The reason for that is that you still will be an employee of your own practice mm -hmm. and you still get those benefits. But in addition to that, you're also going to be an investor in your own business. Mm -hmm. So what, is, what does that mean? Yes, you're still going to get a W-2, but now the, the practice itself is paying the other half of those social security taxes, other benefits you're receiving. But now the whole world of tax savings, everything, again, we're talking about throughout these three podcasts, the rules of the game here are very, very different. It opens up a whole list of tax deductible items that otherwise would not be tax deductible. So if you have a quick example of that. If you're a W-2 employee and want to open up an IRA account for yourself, the most you can put in is $6,500. Mm -hmm. If you're an independent contractor, you can open up what's called a SEP IRA, which is also an IRA for self-employed individuals. You could contribute $66,000 per mm -hmm. year to that. Wow. So you're getting more than 10 times the benefit. That's just one of literally hundreds of differences between being an employee and an independent contractor. And then the other one that's very often overlooked is the fact that if you own a dental practice, whether you started it from scratch uh, with no, no patients mm -hmm. or you went into a practice, over time, as that practice grows, you're building equity in that practice. Yep. So dental practice owner has that other big savings there is that down the road, once they're ready to retire, move on, they could sell a significant asset and walk away but an awful lot of money. Independent contractors, that typically doesn't happen because they're typically freelancing at five or six or 10 different offices doing their specialty. So there's mm -hmm. nothing sellable there. And clearly as an employee, you generally are not getting any equity in the practice itself. You're just getting a paycheck, paycheck by paycheck. Mm -hmm. So clearly there's pros and cons you know, to each of these uh, categories. That That's for sure. The a lot of times, younger docs, especially, uh, or even older docs, will say, "What's the big deal? What's the difference? Why is it important for all dentists on 
either side of this, whether they're the employee or employer to un, or the independent contractor for that matter, to understand the distinction between even beyond a tax perspective and why is this important? Okay, well, when you're an employee, uh, basically you go to work in the morning, you leave work and you're done for the day. Usually you're not worrying about the practice too much mm -hmm. after hours. Yep. Uh, and with that does come a certain level of uh, security. You, know, you got that paycheck coming in. You don't have to worry about, do I have enough patients coming in? Is the mm -hmm. revenue coming in enough? Do I have money sitting in the bank account to cover the payroll? So again, being self-employed in any, any type of self-employed business comes with a lot of risk because you're now not just an employee of your own business, but now you're an investor in that business. Mm -hmm. So if you're the type of person who's perfectly fine, just go to work every day, coming home and not looking to push yourself to the next level, you're not looking to build equity and truly build significant wealth. Uh, basically, being an employee may be fine for you. Someone that mm -hmm. wants to achieve it even more is willing to take the, on the risks and responsibility of practice ownership, mm -hmm. uh, that's really going to be a game changer. So one of the best ways to get to point X, financial independence, sure you can do it as an employee, but you're going to get there much slower and you most likely will not reach the same level. Mm -hmm. But when you also are putting on that entrepreneur hat where you're not just a dentist practicing dentistry, but you're a practice owner, uh, that's a whole different ballgame there. So now you truly have something you own. And it's, it's funny, some people think that going into business for yourself is a very risky proposition. And I'm not saying it's not risky, you know, there's risk with everything, mm -hmm. but I'd rather have 500 clients in my business. And I'm sure you'd rather have, you know, a thousand patients because if you lose one or two, you're not going to feel the difference. As an employee, you could go work somewhere and uh, if things don't work out, you know, you can lose your job and now your livelihood is gone. So, mm -hmm. so you sort of have to look at that end of it as well. So I like to think if you're of the mindset and you do want to take on the responsibility of practice ownership, I think there's more security with that in the long run because you're in control of your destiny. Mm -hmm. Can there be any tax advantages if you are paid in W-2 wages? I mean, is it... Uh... I mean, what is available to them to take? Yeah, so what I do is when, when dentists that is an employee ask that question, I say, sure, there are tax advantages, but where you take advantage of that is speaking to your employer. Uh, if it's a large practice, you talk to the benefits department and find out every tax-free benefit that you're entitled to mm -hmm. and make sure you take advantage of that. So also in negotiating your agreement as a, an employee, you may want to make sure you're going to provide the employer. You're going to say, look, your salary, the offer you gave me sounds great, but I need you to also throw in the cost of all my continuing education. I'd like you to pay for that. Um, my malpractice insurance, you know, if I need certain dental instruments or courses that I have to take, whatever the case may be, uh, you want to make sure that part of your agreement, your employer is going to pay that for you because now you have yet another benefit where on the flip side, if your agreement does not uh, allow for the employer to pay for those things, and now you're going to pay for those out of pocket, mm -hmm. you're going to get no tax deduction at all for that as a mm -hmm. W-2 employee. So it is critical to include it. You know, if we're talking about, say, $10,000 worth of expenses you may incur during a year, mm -hmm. 
Well, if you're paying it yourself, you have to earn twenty thousand, right? Pay mm-hmm. the taxes on it. Now you have ten. You pay for those expenses, and you're not getting a deduction for it. Where if the employer pays it, that's fully deductible to the employer. So it's a win-win, you know, for both of you actually. So those are things that a doc that would be working for um, an, a certain owner or entity would want to try to negotiate into their contract. And that's pretty standard practice to try to negotiate some of those items. Sure. It's standard practice, but the rule is if they do it for you as a dentist and they mm-hmm. have two other dentists, they really can't discriminate. So if they got provide it. a benefit like that, it's got to be universal. So you, you may have a dental practice where he's got five dentists working there. He's not providing it to them, and now you're asking for that. Yep. Yeah, that becomes a tricky, tricky situation. Yep. Okay. We touched on a little bit before, um, said we'd come back to it. Can you go into in a little more detail the whole independent contractor paid on a 1099 versus employee and what the criteria are to truly be classified as an independent contractor? And I think there have even been some changes in that recently in terms of how that's going to be, what barometers are going to use to determine if, if you actually are an independent contractor per the law. Okay. So you know, one thing I want to first establish is if given a choice, every employer would have no employees. Everybody would be an independent contractor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the, go- and the government, know, employees, government knows that too. <laughs> exactly. Every employee once they know the rules, uh, they would rather be an independent contractor. Mm-hmm. So if it was as simple as you as a dentist employee and the employer dentist saying you're an independent contractor, that would be great. There would be no employees. Mm-hmm. But the IRS has strict rules here. If you don't follow them, uh, you could be subject to significant fines, penalties. If they know you did this with the intent to defraud the government, uh, there could be criminal charges as well. You could lose mm-hmm. your dental license. So this is an area the government knows they're losing tons of money on because the employer is getting away without paying payroll taxes on behalf of the employee. Mm-hmm. And now the employee, if he's classified as an independent contractor, is writing off all these things that only a true self-employed individual would be able to write off. So the government is losing out a ton of money. And that's why this has always been one of the hot audit areas. Mm-hmm. And now it's becoming even more, a more big uh, area of focus for them. In fact, uh, statistically right now, there was a study done and it's estimated anywhere from 10 to 15% of independent contractors are inaccurately classified as independent contractors. Is that so, just in the dental industry or is that across the board? That's across the board. Okay. Across the board. So the IRS and various states have two major criteria that they look at. One is called the common law test and one is called the ABC test. The common law test has been around forever. The ABC test is, is pretty new, relatively new. I think it was initiated in the, in the state of California. So with the common law test, the presumption is that you are an independent contractor depending on certain behavioral control issues, financial mm-hmm. control issues, and the relationship between the parties. And what that simply means is that if you're dictating to the dentist that's working for you, what they're doing, how they do it, when they do it, that starts to look like they're not independent contract, right? They're mm-hmm. dependent on you yep. dictating what they do. So that would allow you to fail. Also financial control, you know, who, who's in charge of the finances, who, who's in charge of uh, making payments for certain expenses, uh, multiple things related to financial control. If that control is not on the independent contractor, then 
If it's not in the independent contractor, then the government's going to look at them as an employee. Mm-hmm. And then the relationship between the parties, what we're talking about is if the independent contractor agreement says, we're going to provide you with certain employee benefits. Uh, you, you have to work a certain schedule, which is our schedule. Mm-hmm. You can only treat patients a certain way based on what the employer wants to do. That is not independent. So those are the three broad strokes that I'd like to point out to you. If you meet all three of those and the control is in the hands of the independent contractor, then you're probably going to win the argument that, in fact, you are an independent contractor. With that, John, things like in the dental arena, if they're... If you're working at an office, um, it's a general dental practice, you're a general dentist, and they tell you the type of scanner that you have to use, you can't use your own scanner or bring in your own scanner, the type of impression material you would need to use would be one thing, kind of materials and and equipment. The other question I hear come up a lot is staff, uh, Who do you have to bring your own assistant? Can you use the assistance of the practice and scheduling staff too? Do you have to have your own sort of team within that that practice or can you use the uh the team members that are part of the practice if you are going to try to uh, qualify as an independent contractor I, i've never heard of that becoming an issue i mean if the practice you're going to have their own team mm-hmm. that that should be perfect perfectly fine okay i think it re- relates more to you know the practice is open from nine to five and you're required to work from nine to five uh, you know, Got you have it. to use their their dental instruments. You have to use their techniques. The dentist really does not have an independent say. He has to follow the guidance and rules of the dental practice owner. Mm-hmm. When that happens, you fall under the caption of being more of an employee and not an independent contractor. Okay, great. Thank you. All right. So the common law test, by the way, there's also 20 criteria that we usually look at. So does the government. You don't have to meet all of those criteria, but if you meet the vast majority of it, then there's a good chance you could be treated as an independent contractor. I'm not going to go through each of those 20 criteria, but I'm just letting you know the common law test does have various other things they look at. It's not just the three control issues I mentioned to you. And I'll put, I can put up some of the, the more text dense slides like that for those who are consuming it in video, not just audio. Uh, I can throw those up uh, over as an overlay for a little bit, just so people can do that, take a screenshot of it and have that as a reference too. Perfect. That, that makes a lot of sense. And then they're more than welcome to, you know, take that, do what they want with it. At least they'll have a criteria to work with. And, and right now there is, and there has always been, but there's even more of an emphasis on a crackdown on independent contractor versus employee issue. So we need to be very, very careful with this subject. So right now, the IRS is actually moving away from the common law test, and then moving more towards what's called the ABC test. And right now, the ABC test is used by the US Department of Labor and 33 different states. So the trend is really to move towards this ABC test, which is much stricter than what the old law was. And what the ABC test basically does, it basically says the following. Uh, You'll be considered a worker unless you meet these following three criteria. So the first test that we talked about, common law test, Mm -hmm. you're assumed to be an independent contractor unless here you're automatically assumed to be an employee unless you could prove otherwise. So again, the ABC test 
A is you have to be free of the control and direction of the hiring entity. So the practice owner cannot be telling you what to do, how to treat patients, recommend what to do. You truly have to be independent and going in that office and barely speaking to the practice owner. You're just going in there seeing patients. Mm -hmm. uh, the other part, the B part, is to perform work that is outside of your usual course of, of business. So what's very interesting here is if the example you gave before, you're a general dentist and now you bring in another general dentist to do what you do, mm -hmm. you're gonna, in all likelihood, you're going to fail the ABC test because even though both of you practice in dentistry, it's in, within the realms of what that office does. Mm. But let's say that practice doesn't do any orthodontic work at all and you bring an orthodontist in and he does only that type of work, then that would be perfectly fine. Okay. So again, the, this A, B, C, B is perform work outside of the usual course of the hiring entity's business. That is a distinction I want to make there. The third part, which is C, uh, customarily engaged as an independent trade or business outside of that one practice. So I've seen dentists, dental practice owners hire someone that I want you as an employee, I want you as an independent contractor, mm -hmm. and this person works for them 40 hours a week and works nowhere else. That's not going to fly. They have mm -hmm. to work at multiple dental practices. They can't just do this based on this one dental practice saying, you're going to work for me as an independent contractor. It doesn't work that way. And what I always recommend to my dentist uh, is the following. If you are going to go down the road of being an independent contractor, Make sure you follow these tests, but also one safe thing to do is to create a separate legal entity. So don't operate as a sole proprietorship, operate as a separate legal entity of your own. And I've been doing this now for over 30 years, uh, three decades, can't believe how long I've been doing it. But every time I've been encountered uh, a payroll audit uh, and more, more common is Department of Labor audits. Those are very frequent, workman's cop audits. They look through the dentist's accounting records. They're now pulling out and questioning checks that were written out to a business, you know, a PC or an LLC. Only thing they're questioning is when checks are made out to individuals' names and they're not getting paid through the payroll process. So as a safety precaution and nothing is guaranteed, you want to have that extra layer of protection. As a matter of fact, all my dental practice owners, I always tell them, you should never hire an independent contractor unless they have their own separate legal entity so that you can make a check out to a separate legal entity and not to the name of an individual. So that's just good old fashioned common sense. Nothing's foolproof, but it puts you in a much better position where they may never, may not even raise the question in the first place. So using that example, let's say you're senior doc, it, it's Vento, Vento dentistry, and I'm coming in as the the doc just coming out of school, and I'm going to work for you. You're saying don't have you pay that to Michael K. Deluke, DDS, MDS. Have you write have me form an entity, Deluke Dental, and then you would write from Vento Dental a check to Deluke Dental, of which would be I would be the member in the case of an LLC or or president in the case of a corporation. Right, exactly right. And again, that in and of itself will not protect you here. You still have to meet the other criteria. Okay. But my my attitude is the the best 
The best scenario is that the question never be raised in the first place, right? So if you have no one you're paying as an individual at all, and it's only entities, they may look at your books and records and say, I don't see anything here, let me move on. So that would just be the you know the, the the thing I would do as a safety precaution is create a separate legal entity. Correct. And we'll get to a little more in a moment. There's other tax advantages to me to me on on the, the 1099 contractor side to doing that as well, um, and 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 liability reasons as well. So and we'll we'll get to those a little a little more anyway. So it sounds like it's. Um, it's something that would be very valuable. And those are those little things like I don't ever, I don't think I was ever told anything like that ever in my schooling years, but it's such a, yeah. it's such a huge thing to understand that that could mean, I mean, just from a financial headache, stress, audit exposure and liability standpoint, such a simple thing, but, but something that isn't, isn't mentioned. So I appreciate you bringing, bringing that up. And I want to emphasize if, if they deem that you misclassified somebody by mistake and you didn't do it intentionally. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? That means that the employer now, it has to go back and amend at least the prior three years of payroll reports, Okay. pay all the taxes, interest and penalties, could be tens of thousands of dollars, it could be hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's what happens to the employer who misclassified. But that same employee, the IRS is gonna say, well, see, so you brought in 300,000 a year, you had 100,000 in business deductions, they're gonna disallow the 100,000 in business deductions every year, Whoa and interest and penalties. So it could be a death trap if you are not properly prepared for this. If you do this intentionally and they find that the intent was to defraud and the only reason you did this way was to avoid paying taxes, again, you have your dental license and criminal charges that could be at stake here. So people need to take this uh, very seriously. And my attitude is when in doubt, just treat the individual as an employee, put them on payroll, and just leave it at that. Mm-hmm. But if uh, if if you're not in doubt and you have a good argument to show that it's an independent contract, you meet all criteria, then it would be foolish not to go down the independent contract route. Okay. All right. Thank you. Kind of want to come back to the finance theme, underlying theme of of finances, we talked about point X in your book and getting to point X, just a review for those who aren't aware, didn't see part one, or just a refresher. Point X is essentially the point at which you can stop working for your money and your money works for you. So a lot of people call it financial independence, financial freedom, but it's the point at which you essentially work because you want to, not because you have to. How do you see, we talked a little bit before about why someone may want to be just an employee, liability, responsibility, uh, headaches, stress. Um, versus being an independent contractor and or then a practice owner. Is there a difference between the different selection of how someone chooses to practice between their ability, between that and their ability to then get to the point of point X more quickly or at all? Yeah, well, again, when you're a practice owner, your ability to get point X will go up significantly. And again, the the reason for that is the only reason anybody will, will hire a dentist to work for them is because they know they're going to have the leverage of making more money by having an employee perform the service. You know, myself and yourself, when you're a dentist or, or a financial advisor, you can only work a certain number of hours per day and produce a certain amount of revenues. But if you bring in employees, now you have an ability to grow a larger practice. Mm-hmm. So what are the big advantages of practice ownership? Well, number one, the wealth of deductions and tax credits that are available to you you'll end up paying less in taxes overall. Mm-hmm. 
just on the pension side alone, I gave an example of an IRA versus a SEP IRA, mm -hmm. but I have older dentists that have not done a great job of saving for retirement. We put them in cash balance to find benefit plans. Now they're able to put away $300,000, $400,000 a year, all tax deductible. Those things are just not available to you mm -hmm. when you're a W-2 employee. And you know, one of the often overlooked aspects of being a practice owner is you're making an investment of money and time. So it doesn't come for free, but eventually you have the freedom of picking your own hours, your own schedule. No one's going to tell you how to treat a patient. You're going to do it the way you want to do it. So if you're that type of person that you want to be in complete control of your destiny, your future, mm -hmm. then going to work for somebody probably is not going to be a good fit for you, especially in dentistry. And then the added benefit is you're going to build equity. So let's say a dental practice is started dental practice from scratch. Now you're going uh, down 30 years from now, you're ready to sell it. You're grossing $5 million per year. There's a good chance you're going to get $5 million or more from your dental practice, especially if you sell to a DSO down the line, because their formulas, they end up paying more than, you know, general dentists might pay, pay for that practice. So that's yet another benefit down the road because you're not just practicing dentistry, but you're running a business. And at the end, if that business has significant value, there's going to be another big payday down the road for you as well. Yeah, I, from a personal standpoint, I know I never would have been able to get to point X as quickly as I did without if I didn't own the practice. There's absolutely, there's just no way. Um, there's a lot more stress. There's a lot, more, a lot longer hours. You know, it, it's not like it's just, oh, you can go down the same path for 20 years and end up at the same point just with a lot more money. No, it's going to take more of a toll in certain ways. It's a lot more compromise and sacrifice. But if, as you said, if you're if you're wired for that and, and you're geared for that and you wouldn't be, as I knew I never would be a good employee in the sense of working for someone else doing it the way they said. I knew that about myself from the beginning. I was willing to take some harder years early on and and have much less coming in to have much, much, much higher returns as the practice grew. And, and you can reap, reap those rewards as well as the tax advantages uh, on the just the day-to-day the -day side of things as well as the retirement side of things. Uh, and we'll get much more into the retirement side and the third part uh, where we'll, we'll dive a, a lot deeper into, into those options as well. Right. Um, Speaking of DSOs, uh, they're kind of the elephant in the room now with with all things practice transition. Um, it's 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 whether you're a senior doc and it's tempting to sell to well, actually at at every stage, you know, it, it's kind of flipped the market upside down a little bit in that before it was just the the, the traditional approach, which still happens. I do know colleagues who have gone on and are in the middle of this approach or are, are setting themselves up for this approach. Senior doc practices for a period of time, looks for a junior doc. <clears throat> junior doc comes in learns the ropes over five years or so, typically, maybe less, maybe more. And they transition themselves, senior doc transi transitions out, junior doc transitions in, takes the practice and so on and so forth. And that was kind of the lineage of a practice. And then that would happen again and again. Uh, that now is, is still happens, as I said, but you're seeing a lot of junior docs, they're coming out with a ton of debt, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. I think the most recent statistic for orthodontists alone uh, I believe was it's a little over five hundred thousand, maybe five hundred and fifty thousand dollars is the average debt for a graduating orthodontist. I think it's a few hundred thousand. Quote me on that number for for uh, general practitioners, maybe two fifty, three hundred. So you're coming out tremendous debt. Um, you have to obviously start paying this back, and and you're not able to necessarily 
take an income hit early on to say start a practice or, 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 or not make as much money. So the DSO can be attractive to a younger doc because they're probably going to pay pretty well. You're going to have some benefits and, and start to be able to have some income, so some security. For the middle-aged doc, um, you're now seeing that happen, which I don't remember happening before. And again, I want to hear your thoughts, but it, now you're seeing a lot of docs in there you know, who st- might have started a practice, run it for 10, 15 years, or even less in some cases, and they're selling to DSO and they intend to practice for quite a bit longer, um, which again is interesting because it, it, it was that wasn't something you saw happening until recently. And then you have the senior docs who are looking at it as an exit strategy because they can't find a junior doc or they just don't want to have to go through that training a younger doc and bring them in. They're rather kind of turn the keys over to someone else who will transition them over a couple of years, few years, say, and and take over the, the management of the practice. So it's really changed it. And, and I know it's promoted in a lot of ways to sound like it's all good, uh, but nothing is all good. There's obviously pros and cons to every decision you make. So I'd love to hear from you a little bit more about just the landscape. And, and I know we don't have to go in tremendous depth into it because I know it can get really, really deep, but it kind of just a, a 30,000 foot view of just what is this DSO landscape doing right now in the world of practice transitions? Yeah, and, and it's true. I've never seen this uh, number of clients, uh, my dental practice clients, being approached by DSOs. I've never seen anything like this before. Uh, and I think there's just too many DSOs out there right now, and mm-hmm. everyone is starting up new DSOs. So it gets very, very complicated, and you got to be very careful. You know, if you're going to deal with a DSO, make sure it's one that has a long track record. Uh, speak to other members of that DSO. Make sure that they're comfortable with what they're doing. So, again, getting back to your question, uh, for that young dentist coming out of school, should they go work for DSO or work in private practice? That, again, is similar to the question we're asking here. When you go to a DSO, you're going to be an employee of that DSO. So bottom line, everything we talked about before, employee versus practice owner, mm-hmm. it applies here as well. Okay. At the end of the day, it really comes down to what are your professional goals, what are your personal preferences, and what's your tolerance to risk. Mm-hmm. So if you are okay with being an employee for the your entire work span, that's perfectly fine. If you'd rather have more quality of life where you just go to work, see your patients come home, not worry about anything, then again, working at a DSO probably makes sense. And then risk tolerance, what we're talking about there, again, there's risk involved with going into practice for yourself because if you don't do it the right way, if you don't have the proper management team, you can lose the money you invested in it and you mm-hmm. can end up still owing money. Yeah, that goes back to risk reward you know, equation there. So it's a personal preference based on who you are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, I, I've done a lot of lecturing uh, to the dental uh, profession. I, I'd say it's going on over 25 years now. And when I'm lecturing to a group of dental residents or dental students, even at NYU, automatically I could tell who the A personality guy is or mm-hmm. girl. Mm-hmm. And I know that that person is going to do great in private practice. Mm-hmm. And then you have that quiet person in the corner, maybe, you know, not as aggressive. That person might be more suitable to be an employee either in a private practice or in a DSO. Mm-hmm. So some of the pros of working for a DSO would include financial stability. You know, you're going to get a paycheck when you go work there. You don't have to worry about everything a practice owner has to worry about. Less administrative work. Uh, you know, both myself and yourself 
are in private practice, have worked in businesses. You know, running a business is not easy. Anybody that tells you that has never done it before. <laughs> for There's sure. There's nothing to be said to just go work for somebody and let somebody else worry about, you know, do I have reception coverage today? Is there someone there to answer the phone? Mm-hmm. You know, those basic things. Did the trash get thrown out at the end of the day? Right. Do I need, need to do it myself? Uh, so less administrative responsibilities are pro of working for DSO. Also, you know, likely they'll have access to more technology because the DSO may be in a better position to bring in the state-of-the-art equipment, where if you're a one-man dental practice, that's a huge financial commitment, and maybe you're not going to be in a position to to take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. The other big advantage of the DSO is the opportunity to have mentorship and collaboration with other dental dentists within the practice. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if that's the environment you want and those are the key things you're looking for, then a DSO could definitely be the right choice for you, uh, especially if you're just starting out. Mm-hmm. A practice, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the mid midway through your career and the dentist who is uh, retiring a little, a little later, mm-hmm. but, you know, it might be different depending on your sac- set of circumstances. So what are the cons? What what are the reasons to think about not getting involved with a DSO? Well, if you're a control freak, and I hate to be that blunt about it, because quite frankly, I think I am a control freak. Guilty. I'm right there with you. (laughs) So the problem with working with DSO is you're not your own boss. You have to account for somebody, and that means you give up a lot of rights, Mm -hmm. and you give up control of the things like the work environment, the schedule. Uh, the patient care, the level of patient care you're going to get. If those things were important to you, and I know, you know, when you were in private practice for yourself, no, nobody did it better than you did, and you took such pride in it. Thank you. And I c- couldn't imagine you ever working for DSO where they're going to tell you you got to push services they don't need or you don't provide that service. Yep. That that just doesn't fit your personality. And, right. and some of the listeners may have that, you know, a personality where they have to be the one making those big decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing is working for DSO generally means you're gonna earn less income over the long run. Keep in mind, if you're working for someone, the reason you're working for them is because they're planning on making money from your from your time, from your mm-hmm. labor. Yeah. So as opposed to you hiring people and hopefully not only making money on all your time, but also making money from dentists that you hire if you're a private practice. So if you're okay with the lower overall compensation, you know, then a DSO might fit you well as well. And then the other thing, especially from my eyes, because with me, it's all about tax smart strategies. I want to make sure the government gets what they're entitled to, but not a penny more by implementing tax smart strategies. When you work with a DSO, they don't look at what their profitability is in after tax dollars. Their only concern in the way they value any dental practice going to buy, it's called IBITDA. And what IBITDA stands for is an abbreviation for earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. So that's all they're really concerned about. And what that means is if they're going to buy your dental practice, this is for those practice owners that maybe, like I said, are 15 years into it or someone who's about to sell their dental practice because they want to retire within three to five years. Mm-hmm. Only thing they care about is going to be how much you're making before depreciation, before you cost of financing, before amortization, before taxes. So what that tells you is 
they're not going to operate in a tax-efficient manner because their goal is to show the biggest profit, not necessarily the biggest profit after taxes. Mm -hmm. okay. That's a big game changer in my eyes. Uh, and why is it that they look at things that way? Because these DSOs, they're formed not so much to make a lot of money every year, but to increase the value of that DSO mm -hmm. because it's a game of uh, corp corporate finance game. So they want to look as profitable, profitable. as they can uh -huh. to another investor. Because okay. that DSO that owns three practices might end up owning five, six, or ten. But now someone's going to come in, maybe a corporate DSO will come in and pay them crazy money. Uh, so the focus here is not on minimizing tax. It, the focus here is really on maximizing the value of the practice so it could eventually be sold to somebody else. So that is a big difference. And mm -hmm. you know, I just recently spoke with a dentist, very successful practice, actually has two separate practices with his wife, uh, doing great. For the last 30 years, all we talked about is how to lower his taxes. Now that he's thinking about being bought out by a DSO, that too has changed. He doesn't want to worry about that. He wants to build equity yep. so they pay him a lot more money. So these are the types of things you need to think about. So if you're looking to make as much money as possible, do it in the most tax efficient way throughout your career, DSO may not be the best way to go. Okay. Uh, again, a little slight thing there, if you're just working for DSO with no equity ownership, then you really have no skin in the game. Mm -hmm. Generally, if you're selling your practice to do a DSO, they also give you some portion of equity there. So at least you have that possibility down the road getting a big payout. So, you know, those are really the, I, I look at those as cons to being involved with a DSO. And the big, big takeaway there is the control issue. If you're okay with giving it up, then DSO is probably going to be fine for you. And they can also have, they can also have yeah. some minimums and production minimums and and uh, the like, correct to to get your equity payouts and to be able. You have some sometimes they'll set certain bars that you have to meet annually or, or whatever the, the the term is to be able to achieve that equity. So it might look pretty good up front, like oh my gosh, you're going to get this payout here, this payout here, in addition to your normal salary. But it's not always that easy. Is that correct? 100%. I've seen this happen dozens and dozens of times. So I'm glad you brought that up because you made me think of yet an important point here. If you're a dental practice owner and you're approached by a DSO to buy you out, mm -hmm. if it sounds too good to be true, it probably isn't completely true. And what mm -hmm. you want to do, one thing you want to do is never sign a letter of intent until you have your dental practice specialist look at it, CPA. Mm -hmm as well as your dental practice specialist attorney, because the slightest wording in that contract could really be de detrimental to you. So they may mm -hmm. promise you, you're gonna get a set salary X dollars if you meet these production limits. If those production limits are not realistic and just can't be achieved, mm -hmm. you're meaningless. So you wanna make sure before you sign anything, even if it's just a letter of intent, make sure it's been torn apart by both your CPA, hopefully it's a dental CPA who understands these contracts, and a dental practice attorney as well. Mm -hmm. that, that's the only time you can negotiate with a DSO. Once you sign that letter of intent, 99% of your negotiating abilities just went out the door. Okay. So make sure all those details are looked at and across the T, dot the I, 
Don't just blindly sign it because they offered you some ridiculous number you never thought you could get for it. Great point. All right, thank you. So in terms of some pros of being into private practice, uh, first of all, autonomy. So you're the decision maker. You basically set your own hours. You're in complete control of your destiny. You can provide personalized patient care. So you're going to provide the care you want to provide based on your beliefs as a dentist, Mm -hmm. not what some corporate organization is telling you the care should be. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, you have higher earning potential, as we discussed before. And I already covered this on the flip side of it. You're going to have the major tax benefits that we're going to cover through these three podcasts, most of which you're not going to get uh, you know, through a uh, through a DSO, you'll mm-hmm. you'll get it through a private practice stuff. As far as the cons, you know, why should I think about not going into private practice? Mm-hmm. Clearly, there's financial risk there. Mm-hmm. You're putting up your own money, your own time. You're borrowing money to create something. You have the administrative responsibilities that all those will fall on you. The nice thing is, if you're in a DSO, you basically practice in dentistry based on how the DSO tells you to practice it, mm-hmm. but you're not worrying about things like meeting payroll, do I have the right type of insurance, do we buy enough dental supplies? So the things that come along with being a practice owner uh, and the DSO employee, you don't have those responsibilities, generally speaking. So as a practice owner, you have to wear multiple hats. One minute you're a dentist, next minute you're a bookkeeper, then a billing agent, in a marketing firm, you know, you basically have to learn the, the, all those different skill sets. What I tell dentists is this, don't expect to be an expert in those areas. You have to create a practice management team. Mm-hmm. So you pull together when you own your own practice, you focus on the dentistry. Of course, you gotta be the big decision maker, but get it, somebody that knows something about marketing on your team. Make sure you get a dental practice CPA, dental practice attorney. So rely on those experts so that those areas that you are most likely weak in, you'll have somebody to lean on to make you better. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't do it on your own. The truth of the matter is you cannot do it on your own. The other negative of being in private practice is, again, lack of support. And what do I mean by that? Who do you turn to? You know, If you want to take a vacation for two weeks to Europe, you have to shut your office down. Well, if you're in DSO, somebody might be there to cover for you. So those are the type of things you want to think about. Uh, in private practice, it is probably one of the hardest things you'll ever do. Probably the only hardest thing is marriage. But uh, second to that is trying to go into practice for yourself. It's not easy, but the rewards could be tremendous. They really could be. Great. Um, it's obviously a pretty deep topic. One thing to ask about that on the private practice side that I think people maybe don't understand and feel is as much as the stress is there, and you alluded to some of this, it's also kind of stressful. I mean, as, when you're in it, it's like, boy, it'd be kind of nice if I didn't have to deal with this particular team member or this particular situation. But also you can deal with it, meaning if that person is causing you significant problems or stress, yes, you have to be the one to pull the trigger and find someone new. But when you're working for a different entity, they're going to be the one. And you may maybe want so-and-so up front not to be there anymore. And they're like, sorry. I mean, that it's too bad. And then maybe that person schedules wrong every time and starts booking the wrong procedures into your chair. Can't do anything about it. So it's, it's important. I like how you laid it out with the pros and cons, because there's a flip side to everything. You know, it's, 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 it might sound really appealing and really tempting to not have all those headaches at the same time. 
you are able to deal with those headaches if and when they do present. Uh, and maybe you want to do a little more marketing. Well, like you said, you can hire someone for marketing. Well, if you're working for a corporate entity, you can suggest it, but they might say, well, this is all the marketing we're going to do. So it is really, um, I think it's very individual and, and it's may, maybe it's something we could consider next year. Um, and we have a third series, a part of this series come up, but something next year, maybe touch base on uh, to just, just do an episode on that and just kind of chat. Um, and we'll see, we can talk, we can talk about that, but just to see, because there's just so much and it's constantly in our study groups online. I just see so much posted, especially by younger docs, but even older docs saying like, what I'm the same question over and over and over again. It just should I do a DSO or in our orthodontic arena, OSOs uh, are now a thing. And it's just, they just, as you said, it comes down to personal decisions ultimately, but making an educated decision is really hard with all the noise out there. So um, I think it's, it's important thing to, to for, the, for docs to understand. Exactly. And I think for today, at least you touched on the first step, which is knowing the pros and cons of each. Mm-hmm. And it might be as simple as that if it's right or wrong for you. But I think a, you know, definitely dedicating a podcast just to this topic, I think would be, I think it'd be terrific. I think we should definitely do that. Okay. Awesome. Thanks. So uh, on to uh, stepping off the DSO side for a minute, getting back to the practice ownership side. Um, we alluded to it a little bit before, but if you could now take a little time just to go over the different entities that are options for a practice owner, I know that can be very confusing. Again, to keep repeating this, but it's something we don't learn anything about entity selection in our educational system. So if you could just give a, a, a brief overview of what some of those choices may be for an owner, dentist, uh, or uh, an independent contract. Yeah, and that's a common question I get from dentists. What's the best dental practice uh, entity for a, for a dentist? Mm-hmm. And that question, of course, depends. It depends on all the facts and circumstances. So the broad scope here is either a sole proprietorship, partnership, corporation, S-corporation, or an LLC. Those are the broad scope of uh, ways an individual could operate either as an individual or as a, or as a separate legal entity. Mm-hmm. So the first one, the sole proprietorship, is technically not a separate legal entity. That's just you as a dentist going out and you shingle up working as a dentist under your own name, similar to an independent contract, except you have your own physical location. So the big advantage to that is not a lot of cost in getting that type of structure set up. Mm-hmm. It's the simplest form. The big reason you don't want to do that is that there's unlimited liability. liability. Okay. So that means if your dental practice fails, say somebody trips and falls in front of your dental office, didn't have adequate insurance, they could come after not only your dental practice, but they could go after you personally and put a lien against your assets. Mm-hmm. So having unlimited liability for most business owners, that's a big negative. You know, you don't want to be in that position. But also, sole proprietorships do have the highest audit risk. During podcast one, we covered the whole thing about audit risk. Sole proprietorships working as a Schedule C filer on your personal tax return, that comes with the highest level of risk okay. in terms of being audited. Uh, the other entity choice is a partnership. By definition, in order to have a partnership, you have to have two or more individuals involved. That's thus, you have a partnership. You enter an agreement to work together. You do not want to be in a general partnership with the dentist, because if it's a general partnership, not only do you have unlimited liability, mm-hmm. uh, as you do with a sole proprietorship, but if you're pra- if you're your partner, your dental practice partner, uh, is accused of malpractice, 
you could be held liable for their malpractice as well. Mm -hmm. So general partnerships you usually don't want to set up. Typically, we'll recommend limited liability companies, LLPs, those type of structures, but at least it'll shield you from that second layer of uh, liability. So in uh, dentistry, general partnership is just something you don't want to pick as an entity choice. So how do we go about getting limited liability? Mm -hmm. Well, large publicly traded companies, the IBM, the Apple computers, the Microsoft, those are all publicly traded companies. The advantage of investing in a publicly traded company or any regular corporation is I invest 100,000, go with it, do what you have to do. You make a lot of money, that's terrific. The company goes belly up, the most you could lose is 100,000 you were invested. Mm -hmm. They cannot come after you personally for anything above and beyond that. Mm -hmm. Same is true with a dental practice. So that's why most dental practice owners will consider going into one form of corporation or another or a limited liability partnership. Mm -hmm. So what's the big negative of being a corporation? Double taxation. And one thing we know is we don't like paying tax the first time. We want to make sure we pay mm -hmm. the least possible under the law. But if you're a C corporation, just like IBM, Microsoft, or Apple, any profit they make gets taxed at the corporate level. Mm -hmm. So they can lose up to half of their profit between federal, state, and city tax at the corporate level. Then any profit that's left over in that corporation, they can pay that profit out to investors in the form of a dividend. Mm -hmm. That dividend, guess what? It's taxed all over again. Mm -hmm. So you're paying tax not only at the corporate level, but the individual level. So corporation solves one problem, but it creates another problem, which is double taxation. Mm -hmm. So what's the solution for that? Well, the solution for that is filing what's called the subchapter S election. Mm -hmm. The S in subchapter S stands for small business. Uh, two criteria to meet in order to be a sub S corporation, you have to have less than 100 shareholders and you can't take on any foreign owners. Well, number one, to be a dental practice owner, you have to be at least a US citizen or resident. So that's not an issue. And I've never come across a dental practice with more than 100 shareholders, although I'm sure they exist out there. Mm -hmm. So it would be a no brainer if you were a corporation to elect subchapter S status. What that does is it gives you all the benefits of limited liability protection that we all want, but at the same time, uh, you avoid paying double taxation. So all income earned flows through to you personally and you pay that tax on a personal level, but you still get the benefit of all the deductions that we talked about. The other advantage of being a subchapter S corporation as opposed to a limited partnership or a, a limited uh, professional limited liability company is that you pay social security and medicare tax only on your wage income any profit you have above and beyond that is not subject to payroll tax so that is also an opportunity to pay less tax because the distribution to you as a shareholder meaning that you're getting paid not as an employee of the practice but as an investor that gets taxed at a much more favorable rate Matter of fact, the recent tax bill that uh, they tried to pass through Congress, uh, it basically included provisions to shut down this loophole 
but as of now, it hasn't been shut down. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things I've been preaching to my clients for decades now. We've got to take advantage of this maximized lowering your Medicare and Social Security tax. Mm-hmm. The thing is you still have to pay yourself what's called a reasonable salary. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, again, I could go on and on about subchapter S corporations and all the different strategies there. But the key takeaway here is for most dental practices, I think this could be the right choice. Uh, if you're in the early stages of your practice, uh, you might want to just set, start out as a PLLC, professional limited liability company, with a special tax break available to you early on in your practice mm-hmm. when you're not making big bucks. But that's something we would have to analyze on a year-to-year basis. And then, of course, as a flow-through entity, as I discussed in podcast one, your audit risk as a flow-through entity is significantly lower. So if you have a dentist grossing 500000 a year as a sole proprietorship uh, versus an S-corp or even a, a professional limited liability company, you're seven times more likely to undergo an audit as a Schedule C filer. So again, these are all the things you got to weigh out. And what might be the right choice for our listeners today at this portion of their life or at this stage of their practice, it may evolve and may be different a year or two or five years down the road. So having that interaction with your CPA, your CFP, who really understands you and your practice, it's a game changer because I've seen it time and time again where people are not taking advantage of what the law allows them to take advantage of simply because they didn't know the rules mm-hmm. and they advisor did not spend the time to have these discussions with them, thereby putting them in a position where they're paying a lot more tax than is required by law. So, you know, we definitely want to avoid that. So the last entity we're going to talk about is going to be a limited liability company, also known as an LLC. If you're a dental professional, anyone that is a professional licensed by the Department of Education, uh, basically at the front of your LLC, you'll see a P. That stands for Professional Limited Liability Company. Even if you create a corporation, you can't be a regular corporation. You have to be what's called the PC. The P stands for Professional Corporation. So that's just a way for you to, what you're required to do is to disclose to the public, whoever you're dealing with, that you do have limited liability protection. Mm-hmm. So you want to make sure you set up that way. If you do set up a PLLC, as an individual for tax purposes, you'll still be considered similar to an independent contractor, a sole proprietorship. Mm-hmm. You'll be taxed in that form. Eventually, if you take on a partner, then you'll be taxed as a partnership, but with limited liability protection. Or if you get to that stage in your practice where your CPA, your dental CPA says the advantages now of being an S corp versus a sole proprietorship are dramatically to your advantage. At that point, we simply make a subchapter S election with your PLLC. Mm-hmm. And now you're going to be treated as an S corporation and get all the benefits that come along with that status. And the general rule is if you're making 400000 or more per year as a dentist practice owner, mm-hmm. then being in a corporate format will most likely be more beneficial to you than being uh, set up as just a single member uh, PLLC. So again, a lot of stuff we could talk about here, but the general idea here is 
There's no one size fits all. It's a very individual situation. So you have to present all the facts to your dental CPA and say, here are all my facts. Based on everything you know in law, what entity choice is right for me? And if they know dentistry well and they know the tax laws well, they're going to be the ones that are going to be in the position to help you select the right entity choice for yourself. That is a short version of that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and it's tough to appreciate you consolidating that because it's it's dense material, but you did a great job of just kind of giving a synopsis that that touches on it enough for people to go do some more research. And that's what I hopefully what I wanted to do with these podcasts is is give them enough information to just start looking for more information themselves. And ultimately, I've been always been of the belief that you can't just go at you, you need your advisory team. And I think you can speak to this in, in our relationship over the years, you, you need your advisory team. And obviously, I defer and, and trust you on all things tax related. At the same time, I have a responsibility to understand a little bit of this myself. And if you just walk into your advisor and say, or, or corporate attorney, or whatever, tell me the entity, tell me, you, you have to ask educated questions to get appropriate answers to your particular situation, because you just gave a bunch of different scenarios where you're going to bring in a partner, are you a newer in practice, are you established, all the liability, all of those different circumstances are different for different people. And if you just try to use a one size fits all approach, you maybe are making a mistake. So as you said, it's this combination of having the right team there, but also having there's a responsibility on the doctor to start to understand some of this uh, on even a, a basic level. Certainly, I'm never going to understand it at the level that a CPA would, but it, I think it's really important to stress to the docs out there, especially the younger docs who are, it's not rocket science. It's just you need to take the time to go do the homework and understand the basic terms so that when you do meet with your CPA and or your corporate attorney, you understand what they're talking about. Absolutely. And, and by the way, chapter 11 of my book, deals with this topic, along oh, with everything you need to know about going into private practice for yourself. So I have a whole section on these different entity choices. And what I always tell my dentist, dental clients, I don't want you to be a tax expert. I don't need you to be a legal expert. But you at least have to know the basics mm-hmm. so that you, like you said, Mike, you have to be able to ask the questions. Mm-hmm. If you're not asking the questions, chances are they're not telling you what what you need to do. Mm -hmm. So basic general understanding is really what these podcasts are about, but you can't rely just on the podcast, of course. Refer to chapter 11 of my book Mm -hmm. before you go into private practice for yourself. And again, always think the simple rule, work with a dental CPA, work with a dental certified financial planner, because they're gonna be in the best position to understand you as a dentist and your unique needs as a dentist as well. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. As I said, this was part A of this part of the podcast. We will uh, launch part B next week. So please be sure to stay tuned for that episode. Take care, everybody. Have a great day. Thank you for watching this episode of the Doc Podcast. Be sure to visit theorthocoach.com to get access to CE courses or schedule a private one-on-one coaching session with me. And remember to join the doc community on Locals for more great content designed to help you succeed both personally and professionally. Just go to Locals and search for the doc community. You can also find doc on Instagram at at the ortho coach. And remember, you have the power to do amazing things. Mm-hmm.